Yes, thank you. Good morning. I, uh, I want to ask us to do something this morning for the next 25 or 30 minutes or so that does not come naturally to many of us anymore, and that is to pay attention. Now, I don't, I'm not so worried about you paying attention to me. I raised two kids to adulthood I am used to not being paid attention to. That's not the issue. But, like, paying attention, like, our current version in this world of paying attention and really focusing is, um, like, streaming on one screen and scrolling on another screen and texting on a third screen, and that's while we're driving. Right? There's just a lot of things to pay attention to. And, and what happens when we dive into God's word and hear it proclaimed is way too important to get missed by all the distraction. And so it's, I'm going to encourage us, and in just a moment I'm going to ask God to help us because when we get together, we, we unite together as followers of Jesus. That's, that's what holds us together. Our unity is in him. We worship and we follow Jesus. But his truth in this book, in this Bible, is where we encounter him. And so as a part of our following Jesus, we look on a regular basis to this book to instruct us and to guide us and to challenge us and to inform us and to teach us what is right and good and true. And when we're doing that, here's the thing. It's not just some information from, from up here that gets to you out there. If we allow it, and if we open our hearts and prepare our spirits for it, there's a word that comes from God's heart, directly from him, into your heart and mind as well. And I want to make sure that you receive that and don't miss it. So, Heavenly Father, right at the outset, God, we acknowledge um, we desperately need you. And we come, each one of us, bringing in our situations where we need to hear your word to our heart. And God, what you want to say to us from the text is going to hit each one of us a bit differently. Lord, we simply ask this. Holy Spirit, would you uh, illuminate, would you shine your light of truth upon the word as it's spoken? And God, would you speak to each one of us individually in our heart that exact word that we need this morning based on where we are right now so that when we leave this place in just a little while, We'll leave knowing exactly what it is that we need to do in response to what you're saying. That's our prayer, and we say it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Fantastic. Well, we are in our, we're working our way through the book of Luke, right? Slowly, but we're working. We're all the way up to uh, chapter 11, and in this kind of section of the road, we've entitled the series Choosing Sides. And the reason we're doing that is because Jesus is hitting a a portion of his ministry where, you know, early on he was teaching the people and they loved him. And he was healing the people and they loved him. He was drawing crowds. He was very popular. And then in this section, as he's beginning to make his way towards Jerusalem, where he will give his life on the cross and die, he's starting to come into contact with more and more of the religious rulers uh, that are kind of hostile to him. He's an outsider, and they can't control him, and they don't like that. And so he's getting more and more resistance. And so in face of that resistance, Jesus is increasingly saying, look, when it comes to following me, there comes these points where you need to choose which side you're on. Are you following me, or are you not? Are you living a life to please God, or are you not? One of the things, as Jesus made his way closer and closer to the cross, it became just a little bit clearer. There's very little middle ground. There's very little middle ground. There comes a time to choose sides. And that's where we are in this passage. 
Let's just dive in at Luke chapter 11, verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation, and she will condemn, condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. And the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. We're going to loop back around and kind of look at that a piece at a time. But this is, a, this is Jesus getting maybe a little harsher with his, with his audience than we've seen before. This isn't, um, he's kind of moving away from nice, friendly, smiling, happy Sunday school Jesus to get up in your business Jesus and challenge you where maybe you need a challenge. And he says, he opens this part of his message with the phrase, this is a wicked generation. It's always nice to win your audience over and find some common ground. Good morning. Welcome to Mission Viejo Christian Church. You are a wicked congregation and you're evil. Right? It just draws you right in. We understand what a wicked generation looks like, don't we? I don't think it takes incredible insight to look around in the world as we encounter it and go, there is something wrong here. And it's not just something wrong and broken. There is something evil. And we see it almost across the board. In the tensions and in the divisions, in the economy, in health, in finances, in emotions. We, there is uh, what takes place in schools and education and what our kids are subjected to at the early ages. Just unthinkable not so very long ago. There's something wrong. There is some evil taking place. And we can recognize that, and we can call it out for what it is. Jesus, it makes me wonder, as he looked around, as he saw the world and said, this is a wicked generation, what was the situation that he was looking at, and how like unto ours is that? When he looked around the society of his day, he saw there was all kinds of political uh, repression. The Israelites lived under the yoke and the bondage of the servitude uh, of the Romans. And then the, the, the... Jews themselves didn't get along with the Samaritans. They disliked and disapproved of them, and everyone was disagreeing and disapproving of somebody else. In that way, there was, there was racism uh, running rampant. There was all kinds of social injustice and economic inequality. Right? Those who had of, of resources and influence and power were uh, managing that and leveraging that to get even more and to keep themselves in positions of influence and power and wealth. And in doing that, they were taking those who didn't have influence or power or wealth and moving them out to the margins of society. The religious leaders were involved in a system of manipulation so that they manipulated the religious system for their own benefit at the expense of their people. So maybe Jesus' day wasn't so very, very difficult than our own, or different than our own, right? Maybe, maybe they were kind of similar. No doubt it was wicked. And this is what I would expect. As I read this passage, and Jesus says, this is a wicked generation. And, and I expect him to say, and here's what makes this generation so wicked. The injustice, the inequality, the racism, the hatred, the division, the manipulation. But that's not what he says. 
it's of interest to me that he says, this is a wicked generation. They're wicked because they ask for a sign. That's just not what I'm expecting. And I think it requires me to ask some questions like at the very basic level, like, Jesus, what are you talking about? How, how does that... How does that define the wickedness? And in part, we go like, but like, is it wrong to want a sign? Is it wrong to hope that there's going to be a moment where God does something extra and special and very personal and unique to me and out of the ordinary in a way that's like, oh my gosh, God, I know that you're there with me. And that encourages me. Yes, there's nothing wrong with doing that. In fact, I say all the time, one of the best habits you can get into is starting your day with a prayer that says something like, Lord, I know that you're at work in my life today. Would you open my physical eyes and my spiritual eyes? Help me to see and discern the various things that you're doing in my life for me throughout the day so that I can celebrate them as signs of your presence. That's a great prayer to pray. Several years ago, uh, my wife Rochelle and I had the opportunity uh, to go like on a trip of a lifetime. It was this cruise in the Mediterranean. It was beautiful, sun-soaked. We're up on the top deck of the ship and we're just walking around and there's just peaceful moment of God's beauty on the ocean and we're just having a little moment and my wife did what she sometimes does in those moments she just connects with God in the moment and she says God this is such a perfect moment but would make it even more I just more uh, perfect would I would just love to see some dolphins I haven't seen any dolphins yet (laughs) and I kid you not as I live and breathe, and if I'm lying, I'm dying, and on the soul of my mother who's sitting right over there, we looked up from that prayer to see a pod of dolphins make their presence known by jumping and swirling and, and everything else like that. It was amazing. And I checked. I said, you didn't happen to see a bunch of those dolphins before you prayed that, right? You're not just putting one over on me. That's not how it happened. It was just one of those moments that was a, like, that's not going to prove anything to anyone but it connected with our heart that God's there and he's listening. There's nothing wrong with enjoying those signs when they come. There's nothing wrong of of looking for them when they're out there. But that's not what Jesus was talking about, this wicked generation that asks for a sign. Because the word for ask there isn't like politely request or humbly inquire. The word has to do a lot more with like a driving, relentless, pursuing, even a demanding of a sign. This is, this is people, of their, they're a wicked generation because they're taking the posture of, you say who you are? Okay, God, prove it. You owe me proof. And Jesus says that's the problem. Amen. Now it's interesting to me. Jesus saw all the outgrowths of that, all the injustices, all the social evils, all the inequality, all of that. He saw that. But he saw past that to the source that lies behind all of that. And that source is someone who takes a wrong approach and has a wrong orientation in their relationship with God. That's what plays out in all of those evils. I think there's something for us to learn as we look at the evils in our society. Oh, they're there. And when asked, we should not hesitate to call out evil as being evil. We don't apologize for that at all. But following Jesus' example we should probably be most interested in saying there's something behind those evils and it's a wrong orientation towards the relationship with God and we've got to get that right. First in ourselves and then if 
if we can, to help others as well. That's an important thing. So, what is so bad about demanding a sign? A people who demand a sign of God, a people who say, I won't be satisfied and I won't follow you and I won't yield to your lordship unless you prove it to me. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is this. They stand in a place where proof is more important than faith. They said, if you're going to force me to choose between having faith and operating by only what's proven, they say, I'll take proof. And God owes that to me. Now, the problem with this is that God has laid out a different program for what's most important to him. The writer of the Hebrews said that without faith, it's not just unlikely to please God. He says without faith, it's impossible to please God. You will not please God without faith. When Paul was writing to the church in Rome, he put it this way. He said, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And it's a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, here's the deal. Faith doesn't imply that we just like take common sense and reason and throw it into the wind and ignore it. It doesn't mean that we embrace nonsense or, or, or refuse to think. It doesn't mean that at all. In fact, I will tell you, I think personally, I find that the Christian worldview of all of them is the most compelling. I find it to be the most consistent, the most internally coherent. It's logically defensible. It's all of those things. But I will be honest with you, that doesn't prove anything. Everyone's worldview from within that worldview seems consistent, seems coherent, seems to make sense, and seems to be defensible. It's not proof. But the thing is, it's okay that it's not proof because God prefers faith. Without proof, it's impossible to please God. Nope, that's a bad translation. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Now, you may rightly say, I wish it didn't work that way. Like that, that's not how my brain works. My brain would prefer proof as the standard. You might say, if I were God and I were creating a cosmos, I would create a cosmos in which every question was answered and every uncertainty was turned into certainty and there was no mystery and that there was an answer for everything and that everything was proven. And you would be well within your rights to create your cosmos that way. But until you somehow summon up the power to create a cosmos of your own that operates your way, I'm going to suggest that you're stuck in the one that God created. And the one in which he says, in the cosmos in which I created, in the cosmos in which I placed and created you, the relational currency is faith, not proof. You see, for those who Jesus was speaking of, their desire for proof of a, with a sign, their desire for proof, it was just a workaround for them for the fact that they lacked what God really wanted, which was faith. And here's the second thing, the problem with demanding a sign. There's, there will never be enough proof. Right? There will never be enough proof. How much proof do you need? I mean... He'd spent his ministry walking around casting out demons, 
bringing people back from the dead, opening blind eyes, uh, lame legs walked, right? He did all of those things. Some people got healed just like accidentally. He didn't even know it because they touched his clothing, right? All kinds of, everywhere he went, he's fulfilling by, uh, Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah one after another, after another, after another. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And when you consider that he lived maybe 30 years, right? That's 10 a year. That's, done, that's darn close to one a month for every month of his life he fulfilled another messianic prophecy. Not, still not enough proof. You know how it is. You know the people who say what I want is proof, but they're just not interested. What they want is another reason not to, not to yield. And you say, you say, well, why do you think this? And you offer them this marvelous buffet and banquet of evidence and proof and coherent thought. They go, well, no, I don't mean like that. I mean over here. It's something different. And they move the goalposts. And it doesn't matter how many banquets and, and buffets you lay out before them, they're just not going to be satisfied. There's never going to be enough proof. Never, ever. God, here's the third one. And this one might be the most compelling and the most difficult. And it might hit us closest to where we live. That mindset that says, I demand proof, I demand a sign, suggests that God owes me a satisfactory answer that eliminates my uncertainty. God owes me, full stop, any sentence that begins with God owes me is probably going to be a bad sentence. (laughs) Not going a lot of good places from there. God owes me a satisfactory answer that eliminates my uncertainty. Like I, re- like, I get that. I feel that way a lot. We've got stuff going on where we go, God, I am not at all certain what's going on. Like, God, I'm in this situation. I'm in this relational situation that's breaking down and I'm stuck. I'm in this employment situation, which is a disaster, and I'm stuck. My health is given out, um, just whatever it, whatever it may be. And we go, God, I'm just stuck. And, and like sometimes I find myself and we find ourselves going, and God, I'm, I would love it if you would change that situation. But in the absence of changing the situation, would you just explain to me what in the world is going on and how can a God who claims to love me let this happen to me this way? God, you just like, it feels like you owe me that explanation. And Jesus looks at that mindset and I will say, so he looks at me and says, that's a mark of a wicked generation. Amen. Can I ask you something? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Permission granted. Do you really want a God that's small and weak enough that he would cave in to your demands? <laughs> the, the God that we ought to want to serve is a God that is lofty enough grand and majestic enough, knowledgeable enough, and eternal enough that he could withstand the perils of my own immediate desires and not cave. This will make sense to anyone who has ever spent any time at all raising a toddler. (laughs) Toddlers do not know a lot, but they know what they want in any given moment. And a lot of times what they want in any given moment is not what's the best thing for them to get. And that's where the parenting comes in. What they say in the moment is, why won't you just give me what I want? 
why won't you just let me have my way? I want what I want, and that is what I want. But do you know what they need? A toddler needs the stability of living in a world where they're not alone and responsible for everything that happens to them and responsible to make every decision. A toddler needs to know that there are people in this world and people in their life who do know more than they do, who have strength enough to stand by that, and who have a bigger picture in mind. And kid, toddlers who have that grow into kids who become stable because there's safety built around that. Amen. That's the good news. The bad news is They'll never understand that. <laughs> I lived in delusion for a while that one day my, my girl, at a point where she was telling me what she wanted and I was saying no, was going to say, Father, thank you for your wisdom <laughs> and for the strength of your convision, convictions. I'm grateful that you see my long-term well-being as more important than my immediate gratification, and I respect that. Keep up the good work. Not even close. Not even close, because that's not how it works, right? I think, like, in this analogy, we're the toddlers. In this analogy, we, we know what we want, and we know that we want it now, and we know that it should happen now, and we can't even understand why God wouldn't give us what we need. And sometimes, sometimes that's just an explanation. It's, I'm, just not, I'm taught not just about fixing the situation or even an explanation why not. That's what I need. And a loving father says, I know you feel like you need that, but what you really need is the stability that comes from knowing that there is a God who is not so weak that you cave him, that he caves to you and your desires. That there is a God who knows more than you do in all your limited understanding. That there's a universe that this God controls and has a big picture that though you don't grasp it, he manages it. And though it doesn't, it's no fun to be told no in the moment, there is a stability in walking in the understanding that that is there. So God gives us these opportunities. He gives us these moments where we don't understand and we're not receiving the answer that we want and it doesn't make sense and there is no proof. He gives us an opportunity to please him by exercising faith. Amen. He gives us the opportunity to please him simply by exercising faith in those moments. A wicked generation says, I don't want faith, I want certainty. I want to hover there for just a moment because as strongly as that speaks to me and challenges me in the way that I encounter the events of my life, I'm sure it challenges a number of us. I want to ask humbly to myself and to all of us, in presumption, have you demanded of God certainty and proof and withheld from him your affection or your faith or your obedience unless he agrees to abide by your list of demands? If that's the case, and 
guilty as charged. If that's the case, we need to repent of that. We need to let go of that and say, God, I have misunderstood something. I have taken a wrong orientation to my relationship with you. God, I, am, I apologize for that. I am sorry. And God, I'm going to ask your help to walk in faith rather than the pursuit of certainty. Okay, that hit close enough to home. We better move on. He says, that's, um, that's a wicked generation for that. He says, they're not going to receive, receive a sign. But he says, you know what? I will, I'll give you one sign. He says this. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. Just the way Jonah was, uh, he was assigned to the Ninevites, that's how Jesus will be assigned himself to this generation. So, what does that mean? Well, we gotta, we gotta go back. We gotta remember from Sunday school the story of uh, Jonah. Uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with the story of Jonah. Okay, several hands, several not. That's just that's pretty typical that way. So we'll summarize. Jonah was this guy in the Old Testament. He lived in Israel, and and God told him, "I want you to go over to Nineveh. It's about 600 miles away, and I've got a message I want you to give the people of Nineveh." And God's message to the people of Nineveh is, "You're evil, and God's going to destroy you." All right, how to, how to make friends and influence people. God's, you're evil, God's going to destroy you. And they had a reputation of being really mean and killing people who did that. And so Jonah, looking at that, said, no thanks. And he headed off the other direction to sail to the ends of the earth as far away as he could get. But on the way, God didn't like that. And so he churned up a storm in the ocean. And there was a, on the boat, they were about to capsize and drown. And so according to the mythology of the era, if there's a storm, then the gods are obviously mad at somebody. Somebody's god is upset with somebody on this boat. Who is it? And they had this conversation. And it turned out, they found out, this storm is because Jonah's god is upset with him for doing something wrong. And Jonah said, yep, that's me. And so... In order for you all to live, you're going to have to pick me up, throw me over the side of the boat, and then everything will be fine. And so they did. They picked him up. They threw him over the side of the boat. The storm ended. The, 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 the seas rested, uh, and Jonah went all the way down, and God sent a huge fish to swallow him up where he spent three days. This is out of the Bible. Three days in the belly of that great fish before it kicked him back up on the land. Having arrived on the land, Jonah looked at the threat of, of insulting the people of Nineveh and the possible sentence of another three days in the belly of a fish. And he said, I'm going to Nineveh. And he went and he delivered God's message to them. And he said, God's going to destroy you in 40 days. And then he set up his, his camping chair and sat there and said, and I am going to watch it happen. <laughs> How was Jonah? By the way, the story ends, uh, if you're not familiar, if the people were so moved by his message Understand, Jonah didn't come and say, hey, you're evil and wicked and God's going to destroy you unless you repent. He just said, God's going to destroy you. And they, they were cut to the core. And they said, well, what do we, we, we better repent. He had to think this guy's right. How, we, we're going to repent, we're going to fast, we're going to apologize and try and live right. It was awesome, right? So, how was Jonah assigned to the Ninevites? First, first, they were a people whose wickedness was great. They were 40 days out from experiencing God's wrath and judgment, and they didn't even know it. Second, they were in peril. Second, God sent someone to deliver them. That person, third, that God was sending, went to his own death to save those doomed to die in the storm. Fourth, God himself brought that person back from his watery grave three days later when the great fish coughed him up on dry land. And then that person told the Ninevites 
what you are doing is not acceptable to God. In the ways that Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, Jesus says, I'm going to be assigned to you. He comes to a people whose wickedness is great. That's you and me. That's not just the people of his day. That's us. We're deserving God's judgment whether we know it or not. And he comes to deliver us from that. God sends somebody to deliver us. And that's, uh, he, that's Jesus. That person, Jesus, willingly goes to his own death to save those of us doomed to our own spiritual death. God himself brings Jesus back from his grave three days later and raises him up to eternal life. And Jesus tells us, though you're not now living in a way that honors God, you can. I will empower you with my Holy Spirit, and you can please God for the rest of your days. Jesus implies that just as the Ninevites had a decision to make with regard to uh, Jonah's message and how they would respond to it, Jesus' listeners were going to have that very same opportunity. You're going to have to decide how you're going to respond to this sign, he says, that's right in front of you. And then Jesus gives another Old Testament example of someone who found herself in that same very spot. Someone who said, God has put a sign right in front of me. I'm going to have to decide what I do about that. This is Jesus speaking here, looking back. He says, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this people of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. In the Old Testament, there's this account of the Queen of Sheba. That's like kind of down to the south in, in uh, eastern Africa. She heard about Solomon's wealth and wisdom uh, and knowledge and everything. She says, I don't think it's necessarily true, uh, but I'm going to go take a visit and see what's what. And so she came and had a long stay at Solomon's palace. And he taught and he showed and he demonstrated. And at the end of that visit, this is what she had to say to Solomon. She said to the king, the report I heard in my own country about your achievements and your wisdom is true. Now get this, but I did not believe these things until I came and saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, not even half was told me. In wisdom and wealth, you have far exceeded the report that I heard. Jesus says to his listeners, she did not believe either. But she came to her encounter with Solomon, the sign God put in front of her, with an open mind. And when she saw the truth of that sign in front of her, she changed her mind and she glorified God. And she didn't have all the advantages that all of Jesus' listeners had. The queen of Sheba would say to them, why were you so obstinate? Why were you so strong in your ways that you refused to recognize the obvious truth that was right in front of you? Then Jesus returns back to the Jonah narrative, and he says this, The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jonah didn't tell them to repent. They just knew. They saw the sign of his, of his coming and said, we got to respond to that. They responded. They took God's message to heart. They knew what they had to do, and they did it. They repented, and they changed their ways. Jesus is saying to his audience in this passage, you say you want a sign, but you don't really. You come to me demanding proof, but what you really need is faith. In truth, there's no sign I could perform that would, for you that would change your hardened heart. 
And so I'm not going to provide you with the certainty that you demand. But then I love this. Jesus says, but I'm going to call my shot. Here it is. When I willingly go to my death to save the lives of others. When I lay dead and buried in the grave for three days. When God raises me to life like he did with Jonah. That's going to be your sign. And it's going to be right in front of you. What are you going to do about it? The Ninevites were given the sign of Jonah. They repented. Someone greater than Jonah is talking to you, Jesus said. What are you going to do? Jesus says the queen of Sheba was given the sign of Solomon. She recognized the truth of what she saw in front of her. And she gave God glory. Someone greater than Solomon is talking to you. What are you going to do? And I believe that Jesus would say to us today, there's a message and an invitation of the gospel that's a sign to you. What are you going to do with that? The time has come to choose sides. There are a number of us here in this room today who at some point along the way, we stepped out in faith and placed our faith in Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our life. And we've, we've said we believe what the scriptures say is true about him. We believe that he died and rose from the grave. Uh, we believe that he now dwells in our heart and, and calls us to follow him and live after him. And we're doing that as best we can. But some of us in that group today need to choose sides. Some of us, we need to repent of the presumption that says, God, I'm, I'm withholding on that obedience. I'm withholding on that affection. I'm withholding on my pursuit of you until you prove yourself worthy one more time. We've got to let that go. That's what we have to do. Choose a side. Will you do that or not? There are others of us in this room, I'm sure, who uh, maybe we've been around the church a long time or maybe this is the first time we've ever been in church, but there's never been that time where we said, yep, I really stepped into that faith and said, I'm going to follow Jesus. I believe your being here today to hear this message today is a sign, a chance for you to look into the truth of that sign and either respond as the Ninevites did and the Queen of Sheba did, or to respond as Jesus' listeners did in those moments to say, nope, I'm out. To choose a side. And in just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer. If, you've, if you are a follower of Jesus now and already, awesome, pray this prayer and affirm what it is that is at the core of your life. But if you've never said yes to being a follower of Jesus, but today's your day, pray this prayer in your heart while I'm praying it aloud, and the transformation begins. It begins to happen. I know for a fact that most of us started a place where we didn't understand it all. We didn't have all the proof we wanted, all the certainty we dreamed of. We just knew God was saying yes, that I had to say yes in this moment, and so I'm going to follow him. If that's you, pray this prayer in your heart while, we, uh, while I pray aloud. Heavenly Father, not even sure that I understand. I know that I'm not certain, and I don't have every bit of proof that I might prefer. But God, there are some things I know today. I, I know that my sin and the evil within me disqualifies me 
from your perfection. And I know for a fact that there's nothing I can do, no amount of effort I can make that makes me good enough. But because I'm told that faith pleases you, I'm choosing to believe that what Jesus did in going to the cross as a payment for my sin, I'm choosing to believe that raising Jesus from the dead, you demonstrated you accepted that price as the payment for my sin. I'm I'm choosing to believe that you would receive me into your family, not because of my merit, not because of my worth, but simply because you love me. And so God, today I place my faith in Jesus Christ. I ask you to be my Lord, my Savior, to lead and guide me and walk with me in this life. God, help me grow in my understanding of what that means. But today, God, more than anything else, I want to look at that sign you've placed in front of me and say yes and choose the side of following Jesus. It's in his name that we pray today. Amen. Amen. If if that's a prayer you prayed for the first time today, I want to celebrate with you. You're at the beginning of a journey that is amazing. We'd love to help you get started on that. Just um, if, if you prayed that prayer, um, I'm going to be over here for just a little bit right after the service. I'd love to chat with you or the people at Connection Point would be glad to help you with that as well. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, we try to follow Jesus' commandment that says, remember me in the elements of bread and juice in the elements of communion. They remind us, they stand as symbols uh, for Christ's broken body and his shed blood, those events which purchase for us the forgiveness of our sins. And so while the band plays here for just a moment, there's, there are elements in the seat back in front of you. Uh, reflect for a few, a few moments, maybe spend a couple moments in prayer with the Lord. And when you're ready, you can take those elements and de- declare again and reaffirm your faith in Christ. And uh, then we'll be up to close after the final song. Thank you so much for joining us at Mission Vale Christian Church. Just know that we always have live services here every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. We'd love to have you here, and we'll see you next time.